2: We often hear about crime stories in the early stages of an investigation, when they're shrouded in mystery, and then again when they slowly unravel years later in a courtroom. But what happens when we examine these cases from crime to court case? Would we potentially see a larger issue at hand, and would it cause us to remember the victims maybe in a different way? Working as a criminal justice reporter in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada for eight years, I've covered many cases involving female homicide victims. Saskatchewan had the highest rate of intimate partner violence and domestic violence in Canada in 2018, according to Stats Canada. The percentage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in our province is also one of the highest in Canada. And the rate of femicide—the killing of women and girls primarily, but not exclusively, by men— exceeds the national average. This podcast series details the stories of four women, their lives, deaths, and the criminal cases that followed, in hopes of ensuring they are never forgotten.
0: Those answers that he gave that diverged from direct examination to cross-examination were so different, you couldn't argue that both could be true. I'd never had it happen before, and I still haven't had it happen again. Since then,
1: it was uh, one of those who'd have, who'd have thought moments that uh, that uh, you have somebody else would would die on the outskirts of Saskatoon on the south end, southeast end, um, and would prompt somebody to make those kinds of moves.
2: During his opening statement to the jury, Crown Prosecutor Michael Segu said Dorothy Woods spent her last known day alive doing normal things like grocery shopping and watching a movie with her kids. But she had also just told her husband that their marriage was over. Segu said the jury will hear how in the days leading up to her disappearance, Dorothy vented to friends that she was deeply unsatisfied with her marriage and that she told her husband she was leaving him for another man. The trial would also reveal for the first time what led to Dorothy's body being found in a culvert south of Saskatoon near Blackstrap Lake, and what led to David being charged with her murder. I'm Brie McAdam, criminal justice reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and you're listening to She's Gone, stories of female homicide victims in Saskatchewan from crime to court case. This is episode six, part two of the disappearance and death of Dorothy Ann Woods. Police had secretly installed a GPS tracking device on David's bright red Dodge Dakota and were watching the truck's movements. Initially, there was nothing of interest until January 2nd of 2012, when David's truck took a very suspicious trip south of Saskatoon along Highway 11 near Blackstrap Lake. The truck was tracked turning right onto Indy Road before eventually joining back up with Highway 11. The truck continued south, turning around just before Hanley and heading back to Saskatoon. Police began searching the area two days later, on January 4, 2012. It took only 15 minutes to find Dorothy's body. Superintendent Dave Hay was in charge of the Investigative Support Division back in 2012, including the Tech Crimes Unit that was in charge of the GPS device. He says this was actually the first time the Saskatoon Police Service had used its own tracking device in a homicide investigation.
1: I remember that day that the major crime investigators were quite excited to see the data come in that way. It was uh, totally uh, out of the normal than what they'd seen Mr. Woods doing. And uh, it was certainly the investigative lead that led us to Dorothy's body.
2: The suspicious trip happened shortly after RCMP issued a news release about an unnamed woman being found on the outskirts of Saskatoon that same day. It ended up being a different woman found in a different direction. Hay says it was all a total coincidence.
1: It was uh, one of those who'd have, who'd have thought moments that uh, that uh, you'd have somebody else would, would die on the outskirts of Saskatoon, on the south end, southeast end, um, and would prompt somebody to make those kinds of moves.
2: The Crown's theory was that David drove past the culvert because he thought police had found Dorothy's body.
1: And that's uh, the damning piece of the evidence, is why, why would somebody go to that location mm. like that For no reason.
2: At first, the Crown had no definitive proof that David was the one behind the wheel. Police had actually installed a camera on a pole outside David's house, but the footage was too grainy to show who was driving. Then, in the middle of David's trial, a surprise.
0: Thanks to some very stellar reporting, uh, that went on the 6 o'clock news that night. And by 10 a.m. the next morning, two witnesses had uh, come forward that uh, gave statements About about identity of the driver of the red truck at that date and time. Those statements resulted in me signing an agreed statement of facts that agreed David Woods was the driver.
2: That's Mike Nolan, David's defense lawyer at trial. While he admitted David was the driver of the truck... He argued there was no proof that David was the person who sent those racist, threatening text messages to Dorothy's two lovers four days after his wife disappeared. Yes, they came from Dorothy's phone, from a person who said they were Dot's husband.
0: We objected to the admissibility on that because they were highly prejudicial and it was unclear as to the identity of who sent them because anybody can send a text message.
2: Nolan argued for the text messages to be thrown out during a voir dire or admissibility hearing held before the trial began.
0: Chief Justice Papaskal disagreed with our objection uh, because at least one of those text messages, according to the chief, contained information that only Dorothy Woods would know and David Woods and the murderer would know. And because of that, he said... It's open for the jury to conclude the person sending the text message might have been David Woods as the murderer.
2: Derek Brown testified that when Dorothy didn't respond to his text messages on November 11th, 2011, he just assumed she was working things out with her husband. But four days later, someone responded to those messages They referred to Black people in derogatory terms, accused Brown of impregnating Dorothy, and threatened to kill him. After the testimony, Nolan told reporters he was disappointed that the Crown was using those text messages to make David appear racist. Dorothy's friend, Elizabeth Topisan, later testified that Dorothy told her she kissed a man during a trip to Las Vegas in the summer of 2011, and that David would, quote, kill her if he knew it was a black guy. Because this was evidence about what someone else had said, Pepescuil told the jury it doesn't carry the same weight as evidence heard directly from a witness. Although the GPS tracking device was what ultimately led to David being charged, police had been gathering other evidence that would come out against him at trial. During their searches, police had found a receipt that showed David had purchased some poly and rope the day after Dorothy disappeared. The jury heard the labeling on the poly sold at the hardware store matched the label on the poly wrapped around Dorothy's body. During cross-examination, police officers said David had unfinished construction projects around the home and the poly could have been part of those renovations. Those ropes David bought were actually seized during the search. They were the same pattern as the ropes on Dorothy's neck, black and white with yellow markings. And the same as some of the ropes used to tie down the family's backyard pool tarp. Some of the other pool ropes were plain white, similar to the rope that bound Dorothy's wrists. But one of the most striking things about the case was the lack of a crime scene.
0: There's always trace left behind no matter how well you clean. You may not be able to establish whose blood it was, but you can establish that it was human blood Mm -hmm. that was there, that made the stain. So none of that was there. There were no hair or fibers in the vehicles linking it, nor was there any uh, evidence that he cleaned the vehicles. So how does he transport her body from Real Crescent if he in fact killed her?
2: However, when police did their final search after David's arrest, they found a roll of green electrical tape in the garage. It looked exactly like the tape used to secure the poly around Dorothy's body. But maybe that was a coincidence. How could you know it was from the same roll? Enter Robin Abel, an RCMP tape and adhesive expert. He testified as the Crown's final witness. Abel determined that the piece of tape on Dorothy's body fit perfectly together with the end of the tape roll, like two puzzle pieces. Meaning it was the last piece of tape ripped from the roll found in David's garage. Abel said the chances of finding another piece of tape torn the exact same way as the tape found on Dorothy's body was, quote, beyond reasonable possibility. But there was no way to tell, forensically at least, who tore the tape. Nolan asked Sergeant Hudson if any other people were ever pursued as suspects in this case. Hudson said Derek Brown was cleared when his timeline about where he was the day Dorothy disappeared checked out. During the second week of the trial, the jury and the media went on a road trip. They were recreating the route that David Woods took to the area where Dorothy's body was found. My producer Matt and I recreated the drive, starting at 19 Riel Crescent. So there it is. So... What was really noticeable about this house back in 2014 when we were covering the trial is that it had a bright red door. So everybody kind of knew it as the white house with the red door. Um, But it looks like it's been pretty renovated. Uh, Right now it's got like kind of a faux stone, like a faux dark stone exterior and then some kind of gray-blue siding. Um, It's a two-story house. And the door is now a more muted like burgundy color, I would say. And this is where the route starts. So... When the um, jury took the road trip during the trial, we started right here at that house on Riel Crescent. Chief Justice Pepescuil told the jury that the road trip itself wasn't evidence, but it could help them understand the evidence of the route that they'd been hearing so much about. Jurors were in one bus while media and family members followed in another. A yellow flag marked the culvert where Dorothy's body was found, down in the Blackstrap Valley. As we saw firsthand, David did not drive right up to the culvert. The Crown's theory was that he wanted to see from a distance if police were down in the valley. So we are going back onto Highway 11 now. We just went onto Indy Road. um, And basically, you know, it was a very quick drive um, before David turned around and got back onto the highway. So this is the first valley. We'd been driving on a very straightaway highway for quite a while, for about twenty minutes, and this is the first. Uh, this is the first time that there's kind of a dip in the road, and the terrain is changing. David would have been doing a pass by. In an effort to see whether police vehicles were out here searching, at that turnoff on Indy Road, you can't see the culvert because it's down in the valley, but after exiting back onto Highway Eleven. And continuing south, there's a brief moment where you can see the culvert from the highway. Was David doing a sort of pass-by, checking on his wife's body after hearing news of a woman found outside the city? Or, as the jury would hear, was there another plausible reason? When it was the defense's turn to present evidence, Mike Nolan called David Woods to the stand. Everyone held their breath. What was he going to say?
1: The
0: decision whether or not to testify rested with David.
2: But could you suggest to him that it wouldn't be in his um, best interest to testify? Oh,
0: oh, certainly. And certainly I've Mm -hmm. given that advice to a number of clients Mm -hmm. over the years uh, that uh, particularly when uh, individuals have criminal records for similar behavior, um, you may not want them cross-examined. At the same time, though, when you're dealing with a high amount of circumstantial evidence, like in the Woods case, there gets to be a point where an explanation is cried out for. And if you don't give it, you're almost guaranteeing that you're going to get convicted. Because if I was sitting on the jury and I'd heard that kind of evidence, I'd want to hear from the accused as well. And I would want to hear him say he didn't do it.
2: David testified that he and Dorothy had an open relationship, an agreement to see other people as long as they didn't flaunt it in front of their children. He was trying to convey that he wasn't angry about his wife's affairs. He was angry that she wasn't playing by the rules after he found a condom wrapper in their truck. The pair argued about it the morning of November 11, 2011. David said he told his teenage daughter about Dorothy's affairs later that day. Once again, he said he assumed his wife had taken off when she wasn't home the next morning. David told the jury that he drove out to Blackstrap Lake because an anonymous note was left on the windshield of his truck, directing him there. On direct examination, he said he didn't know who left the note, or exactly what was on it. The alleged note was never found. Crown Prosecutor Michael Sagu cross-examined David the next day for about three hours. When he pressed David about the note on the windshield, David said something that took... Everybody, including his lawyer, by complete surprise. He said the note specifically mentioned that his wife was staying at an acreage south of Saskatoon. David said he believed police had put it there and were trying to set him up. He initially said he threw the note away, but was now insinuating that police took it when they searched his home. What the jury didn't know at the time was that this was the first time Nolan had ever heard this information.
0: Those answers that he gave that diverged from direct examination to cross-examination were so different. You couldn't argue that both could be true. One of them had to be untrue, or both of them. Mm -hmm. And that actually backed me into quite an ethical conundrum. And uh, I know you attended most, if not all, of the trial. uh, But that's what led to us going in camera to have a discussion with the media absent and the jury absent. And uh, the only other person in the courtroom was the defendant and uh, I needed to get outside legal advice as to what my ethical obligations were uh, in that case. And thankfully at the time I was uh, working with uh, Morris Baudner, and I had brought Morris and Bill Rowe on as consulting lawyers while I was running this trial. So uh, at the end of the day, Mr. Woods received somewhere in the realm of 90 years of criminal defense lawyer experience on the case. But as a result of the the conundrum, uh, I had to summon Morris to the courtroom. There was an adjournment. And if you read the transcript, you can see where the sheriff's deputy says, Mr. Bodner's here now. So I had to spend some time outlying uh, to Mr. Bodner what happened uh, because I'd never had it happen before. And I still haven't had it happen again since then.
2: Nolan said he was able to stay on as David's lawyer because the answers he received in direct examination were the answers he expected. David also told the Crown that he didn't want police to know about the open relationship. That's why he said he was shocked about the affairs. And he said he threw out Dorothy's makeup bag because he was angry that she had left it in the truck. But he had no explanation for why he lied about that, too. Nolan called one more defense witness, David and Dorothy's 18-year-old daughter, who was 15 when her mom vanished from the family home. Her testimony provided a timeline of Dorothy's last night. They watched a movie. She went to bed before her mom around 1 a.m. and heard the front door open and close sometime after that. Closing arguments were made during the third week of David's trial. Prosecutor Michael Segu told the jury that David Woods was not in an open relationship with his wife at the time of her death. He had found out about the cheating months earlier asked Dorothy to go to marriage counselling, and then found out she was still cheating and planning to leave him for another man. That's why he threatened her lovers, Segu said. In the early morning hours of November 12, 2011, David confronted Dorothy in the backyard so their sleeping kids wouldn't hear them. Segu said David knocked Dorothy unconscious, tied her wrists together, and strangled her with a piece of rope used to tie down the family's pool tarp. He told the jury that David stored Dorothy's body in a structure underneath the pool while he bought poly and replacement robes the next day. He then dumped her in a culvert near Blackstrap Lake sometime before January 4th, 2012. Segu said David killed Dorothy over the stress of a divorce and the financial issues that would follow. Nolan told jurors during his closing arguments that Dorothy's head wounds would have produced a lot of blood. Not only was there no blood found in the pool structure, where the Crown alleged David had stored his wife's body, there was no blood or evidence of a cleanup found during four separate searches.
0: The Crown had failed to prove where Dorothy Woods was killed. If you don't know where she was killed, can you be certain beyond a reasonable doubt who killed her?
2: Nolan said David was framed. He was framed by the person who put the note on his windshield, and he was framed by the person who put the tape in his garage, which police had not found until the very last search. But if David didn't kill Dorothy, who did? The defense doesn't have to present alternate suspects, but Nolan had some theories.
0: I argued that we had heard from four of the six individuals that she was romantically linked with, and we didn't hear from the other two. And Chief Justice Popescal instructed the jury to disregard my speculation in that regard,
2: he also said there's no way David could kill his wife by himself without making a sound or damaging Dorothy's body during transportation.
0: My line of questioning to the pathologist and the coroner was the plastic around wrapped around the body was in pristine condition. And to me, that suggested more than one person participated in placing the body in the culvert.
2: On May 15, 2014, after almost three weeks of testimony and evidence, it was time for deliberations. But first, Chief Justice Popescuil had to give instructions to the jury. They were given three options—not guilty, guilty of second-degree murder, or guilty of first-degree murder. Now, the Crown argued it was first-degree because David formulated a plan after getting in an argument with Dorothy the night before she disappeared. And if the jury didn't believe that, there was something else. According to the forensic pathologist, Dorothy was strangled while she was tied up, which constitutes confinement. Mike Nolan explains.
0: In Canada, if you are committing an indictable offence and a homicide results, it's presumptively first-degree murder. So if you're unlawfully confining somebody and then you kill them during that... There's no second-degree option for the jury. There's no manslaughter option for the jury. It is what it is.
2: Deliberations started around noon. Reporters hung out on chairs in the courthouse hallway, leaving as a group to have supper at the same time as the jury. We were glued to our phones, worried about possibly missing the verdict. Waiting for a verdict in a high-profile jury trial is kind of weird You're riding this line between having nothing to do and everything to do. I will never forget the nervous excitement that traveled through the courthouse when our phones buzzed eight hours later with a mass text message. The jury had a verdict. It was eight o'clock at night. Fifteen minutes earlier, the jury had asked Pepescuil for the definition of second-degree murder. He told them that if they found David intended to kill Dorothy... But the killing was unplanned and not committed while Dorothy was tied up, it would be considered second degree murder. Dorothy's family and friends rushed into the courtroom. David's mother sat in the front row. She was in court every single day of the trial. I held my phone, hands shaking, as I tweeted out the jury's verdict guilty of first degree murder. Applause and cheers rang out in the courtroom. Some people thanked the jury. There were hugs and there were tears. Watching all this happen was an immense rush. This trial had consumed so many people's lives for so long. I could almost see years of weight being lifted off Dorothy's loved ones' shoulders. They didn't speak to reporters after the verdict, saying they were just too emotional. But Dot's brother and best friend did provide victim impact statements to the court. Lawrence Carter asked prosecutor Michael Segu to read his statement. Lawrence talked about how his sister was an amazing daycare operator who loved kids, especially her kids, more than anything, and was always the life of the party. He said searching for Dorothy was torture, and pointed out that not once did David, who he refused to call by name, Offer to help. Lawrence said he finally felt like he could start picking up the pieces of a broken life. I love you, Dot, he wrote. Dorothy's friend, Elizabeth Topison, spoke directly to David. She told him that he had no right to take away his children's mother and that he didn't deserve to have her as his wife. Quote, I, for one, am glad she found comfort from someone else. I, for one, never believed your lies. David did not show any outward reaction when the verdict was read. In fact, during the entire trial, he was pretty quiet and at times even a bit relaxed. Sometimes he even looked bored, like someone waiting in a lobby for an appointment. Before he was sentenced, David was asked if he had anything to say. No, my lord, he replied. At 51 years old, David received the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder. Life with no chance of parole for 25 years. That news garnered another round of cheers from Dorothy's family, which continued outside the courtroom.
1: Justice! That's what happened today. Justice! <laughs> Love you, daughter.
2: On the steps of Saskatoon's newly renovated Queen's Bench courthouse, both lawyers spoke under the bright spotlight of a satellite news van. Crown Prosecutor Michael Segu said he appreciated how the jury had to review a lot of circumstantial evidence. Evidence that isn't drawn from a direct observation, but rather from an inference. As in, nobody saw David kill Dorothy, but the ropes used to strangle her were the same kind of ropes David used on his pool and so on. Segu called the police work extraordinary.
0: I really give uh, my true admiration to the Saskatoon Police Department to do an investigation of this quality without either a body or a witness. It was a truly a remarkable
1: piece of the detective work.
2: Superintendent Dave Hayes says at the time, the mood in the major crimes unit was... Of a job well done.
1: They believe they speak for the dead, uh, those who can't speak for themselves and uh, they had an opportunity to tell Dorothy's story and that's how they thats how they look at their investigation is an opportunity to still tell the story of the person who's died and it's just um, it's a feeling of a success and accomplishment when they get to do that.
2: David's lawyer Mike Nolan said he figured the jury couldn't get past two main things the fact that there was no other suspect, and the pathologist's evidence that Dorothy was bound before she was strangled. He said David maintains his innocence and would likely appeal. About a week later, David filed a notice of appeal with Saskatchewan's highest court. David argued the Chief Justice shouldn't have allowed those text messages from Dorothy's lovers into evidence at trial. The appeal also alleged that Papescu's instructions to the jury were unbalanced and favored the circumstantial evidence presented by the Crown, and that he shouldn't have allowed Dorothy's friend to testify about what Dorothy told her before she died, because Dorothy couldn't be cross examined. Three years later, in the spring of 2017, David's appeal was scheduled to be heard in Regina. But it was adjourned for three months at the defense's request. David had just hired a new lawyer, James Streeton, a week before the scheduled hearing. In September, his appeal was adjourned again, after David requested to amend his appeal. He was now arguing that he had ineffective counsel at his trial. The appeal was rescheduled for October 2018. That summer, Mike Nolan filed an affidavit with the appeal court. It contained a shocking detail.
0: I ask every client after every major trial, Did you do it? I don't always get an answer. Mm -hmm.
2: In this case, though?
0: In this case, I did get an answer.
2: And he did explicitly say yes? Yes. Now, this is a question you asked after trial. Correct. Is that um, usually how it works that you don't want to know while you're representing? Because would that be even, I don't know, legal or moral to to ask that question prior?
0: Oh, certainly it would be legal and moral to ask it. uh, And I'm sure there's lots of practitioners that do ask it. Uh, The problem goes back to my original statement, though, if you are in the camp... Of lawyers that want to know very early on whether your client did something or not and you ask that question or they blurted out during your interview with them uh, you're handcuffed in how you can defend them. You can't present a theory that somebody else may have did it. You can't point to a co-accused and said Tom did it, I didn't. You can't mislead the trier of fact. You can still defend them but you're left with a stock defense that The evidence presented by the Crown doesn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that my client committed this crime.
2: Nolan said he was able to divulge that David admitted to him that he killed his wife because David had waived solicitor-client privilege, and he included it in his affidavit because it pertained to the allegations of incompetence. When David told you that he killed Dorothy, were you surprised? Absolutely. Like, what was your reaction in that moment? (laughs)
0: Uh, Really deflating, really deflating because I had spent hundreds of hours on this cause and to just suck that out of the result, it was really deflating.
2: The appeal finally went ahead in October 2018, more than four years after Dorothy's murder. It was the first case to be live-streamed from the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. Um,
0: There are a number of issues that I've raised in in the notice of appeal. Broadly speaking... um, the
2: The Crown had previously filed a written summary of its arguments, saying the trial judge did nothing wrong by telling the jury that there was an air of reality to the Crown's theory, without outlining or arguing the theory itself. The Crown also argued that the text messages were crucial evidence because there were multiple reasons to believe they were sent by David. In September 2019, the Court of Appeal released its decision denying David a new trial. The judges found, among other things, that there was no miscarriage of justice when it came to David's representation at trial, which meant the appeal judges didn't even have to consider the ineffective counsel argument. David Woods did not file any leave to appeal with the Supreme Court of Canada. So I am standing uh, in front of the, the mouth of the culvert, down about, what we're guessing is about 10 to 12 feet into the ir- irrigation ditch, which right now is just uh, sand and, and snow. And uh, yeah, there's graffiti. There's graffiti written on the concrete part. And it's, um, it's a memorial to, to Dorothy. Um, it says dot, skate, fight, and then a word that's kind of been rubbed away. We can see a D R I, um, and then there's it's surrounded by blue dots. Uh, dot was Dorothy's nickname. And uh, the skating uh, reference is uh, she was in the roller derby community here in Saskatoon, so it uh, makes sense. And then there's the date 11 11, November 11th, the day that Dorothy's believed to have been killed. And a heart. A blue heart. So, that definitely wasn't Dorothy has left a lasting impression on her community. She was well known and well liked. Hay believes that's why so many people cared about this case.
1: I recall her reputation was she was a nice person, a normal person. Uh, she wasn't um, um, from the... From the criminal element, she's just a typical everyday person that you would live beside. And uh, that's kind of, I think, what gripped our community. Uh, They could see themselves.
2: We reached out to many people for this two-part episode, including Dorothy's daughter and brother, but did not receive a response. Michael Segu, who prosecuted the case, initially agreed to participate but had to cancel after he was appointed a provincial court judge. I also wrote a letter to David Woods, who is serving his life sentence at the Saskatchewan Penitentiary in Prince Albert. According to the Correctional Service of Canada, David declined our interview request. There are many organizations in Saskatchewan that provide services to victims of domestic violence. For more information, you can visit the Provincial Association of Transition Houses and Services of Saskatchewan, also known as PATHS, at P-A-T-H-S-S-K dot org. And if you have any information on someone who is missing in Saskatchewan, you can contact Crimestoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. She's Gone is researched and written by me, Brie McAdam. Our producers are Ashley Trask and Matt Olson. Our theme music was created by Bryce Hall. And editorial assistance comes from our editor-in-chief here at the Star Phoenix, Heather Person. Thanks for listening to She's Gone. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.